This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone who tunes in all around the world, writes in, shares stories, guest suggestions, the Patreons who donate. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And also the incredible publicists, including one of my all-time favorites, Kim at New World. Just, just a stellar, stellar human. She brought me today's guest. Her book was fantastic. And we're going to talk about that and all the other things she's doing. She is a wild yoga creator, an author, and an activist. She is traveling the world doing programs and just helping people get in touch with who they are. I'm just honored to have her on. Her new book, by the way, is called Wild Yoga, a practice of initiation, veneration, and advocacy for the earth. That last part really touched my heart. What an honor to welcome for the first time, Rebecca Wildbear. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Hey, what was life like for you when you were domesticated? I think I remember um, uh, writing a poem from when I was um, uh, 24 years old in an outward bound, 50 day outward bound course about uh, what it felt like to live behind walls separated from nature. And I, that just came to my mind when you asked that question. I think it was, um, it, it felt separated from what really mattered, you know, felt like a little bit imprisoned, um, you know, like, like I couldn't really be with what I loved. And I had to stay inside or or sit down or or do things that didn't feel exactly like, you know, what felt true or alive for what my body wanted to do. Was there a spark or something that happened that initiated the transformation process? Uh, there, well, there was, you know, there's been several sparks, but I'd say one of the first sparks was um, one of the biggest sparks was when I had cancer when I was 21. Because I, the odds were high that I was going to die, and they were higher that I would die than that I would live. And so at 21, I was contemplating death. And then I was contemplating, what the heck am I doing? You know, even though it seemed like a lot of projects that I love, uh, I was in college at the time, a senior, I was editor of a newspaper, an RA, a leader on campus. And so it seemed like I was, you know, doing a lot of things that I would, that were really important. But I realized that to my body, I wasn't really doing what I loved, which was being in nature. Uh, I also worked at summer camp and I had worked at the summer camp before I had cancer and lived in one of the wild places, I, uh, wildest places I've ever known at that time. And, and that was there too for sparking me like, this is what I love. Like I worked, I worked for people with disabilities and between the intimate connections I had with them and the just the joy of living in a truly wild place. Like I had a moment where I was like, oh, well, this is, this is what matters. Not, not all the studies and not, not all that stuff. And so I, I think that did, those moments did influence my life. And when I had cancer, I used to make a list like, well, if I live, what, what do I want to do or be? Because I, you know, I, like, it feels like, in fact, it feels like I might live if I can come up with what I really like what the life I really want rather than trying to fit 10 million lives into one life and trying to do too many things. Uh, so that was a, that was definitely 
a major major turning point and uh and then it also just tra transformed my relationship i was a philosophy religious studies major in school but i didn't and i was raised catholic but i didn't really know if i believed in a higher power for sure or i couldn't quite feel connected to anything higher other than nature i knew that nature was a higher power uh, it always had been to me the sacred i was a nature mystic but when i had cancer i felt something else inside me and outside me i felt a larger spiritual connection to like everything the totality and then i also felt a deeper inner soul connection to myself that there was beauty and something mysterious inside me that wanted to be known by me and and be expressed and i just was like touching into the beginnings of it but just doing that changed everything and made me realize that i wanted to live in a way that was connected to that that the spiritual union of everything as well as the depths of my of inside myself both felt sacred and uh afterwards i i was exploring various religions trying to see where i could find that connection and of course being in nature i became an outward bound instructor and uh was was a way when i was in nature i definitely felt it became into outdoor wilderness sports rock climbing mountaineering mountain biking backpacking what whatever i could do rafting outside and uh and then when i was uh i became a wilderness therapist then when i was 29 i came across uh animus valley institute and started doing programs with them and did a vision quest when i was 30 um an animus quest and um encountered another had another soul encounter there um of braveheart my soul name my one of my soul purposes i write about it and then um, I, I became immersed in that guide training program because I realized that was the deepest level connection that I could bring people to. Somehow uh, outward bound and wilderness therapy weren't enough because nature was still viewed as a backdrop instead of something we could have a personal relationship with it with. So through the practices at Animus, which also included dream listening, as well as conversations with the natural world, uh, completely revolutionized my world and continued what had begun with cancer and allowed me to develop practices to go even deeper and then ultimately to become a guide and guide people in that way out in the natural world. And then meanwhile, I wanted to incorporate body practices. So I was also studied embodied meditation, Hakomi, uh, and yoga, um, yoga in Costa Rica and where I was living in the winter and then ultimately became a yoga teacher trainer in Costa Rica. I, I lived in Costa Rica for about 12 winters. And that natural environment really like opened up, opened me up to my body and the kind of connection I can have. So those were all like turning points for me um, in just discovering what really matters and also in the creation of wild yoga and all the practices involved. And, in, in, and I've always been um, interested in how I could help the earth. Um, but in the last five years, I've become more deeply involved in earth activism um, I, it, because I've been a, a wilderness guide for in a soul guide for 20 years and nature has helped me so much. And so many people that I guide, I really wanted to turn my attention to giving back. And in my conversations with the earth, I felt like that I was getting messages through dreams and conversations that that's actually what the earth wanted too for me to bring together personal growth and earth activism and not have them as separate camps, but as things that we do together, that they're both part of the same thing, that our wellness is connected to the planet's wellness. And of course, to help the planet, we need to be well and able to listen to all these forms of intelligence too. Uh, the muse, you know, nature, dreams, 
um, to expand our our way and our ideas and our possibilities for ways that we might be able to do that. And I'm not surprised you got sick and ill and had cancer because the cancer rates are off the charts and they're growing. But doesn't the domesticated life we've designed and that most of us are trapped in, or at least we think we're trapped in or participating in, in it's so unnatural, it makes our bodies ill over time and sometimes sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, that's the the one, the the our mental health and our physical health are very related and the structures of our civilized society are terribly unhealthy. And uh, most people uh, feel like they don't have a choice because there's a monetary system, a survival system by which I have to make more money, I have to work harder in order to live. And I'm still in, in that system too as, as well. Um, you know, so there's, there's a way that that is, um, unhealthy. And so it can become hard to extricate or extricate, extricate ourselves from it. And, uh, that's why the practices that I'm teaching are ways to help extricate ourselves from it. Um, but it, it, you know, I can acknowledge it isn't, it definitely isn't easy because of the way everything's set up, but I think it does begin with acknowledging that it is an unhealthy way of living for us and for the earth both. And um, what what is it going to take to bring us back into balance? And th this book is one, one, one proposal for a set of practices that can help do that. I'm, I'm going to ask you this, but also I've had so many of the climate scientists on are coming from it from the scientific point of view. I have been feeling it now for well over a decade, even earlier, but now worse than ever, that Mother Earth Gaia is sending out severe warnings, distress signals, Gaia is going to be fine. But I feel like if we don't radically change course, we're going to go the way of the mammoth and the dinosaur. Yeah, um, I think that uh, the, you know, the way that at least um, there's uh, reports now that are alerting people. It used to be a while back that there was a belief, nothing's wrong, you know, it's all fine, nothing's nothing. And now the, there's a, enough reports of people like, whoa, um, something major is wrong. Um, and um, sometimes people, though, flip to the belief that, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, and so what can we do but just wait and see? Um, I think it I think certainly it's not looking good for the for the human race at the moment, but also um I do think I do think there are risks for for Gaia um, and uh, you know that humans are massively changing um, ecosystems and destroying ecosystems. and um you know, I think the planet herself will go on in some way, but um ecosystem collapse can equal biosphere collapse and so I think there is a way that it is possible that humans can harm the earth. One of the stories I I, I have posited is around uh, there, you know, there have been um, animals that, you know, we thought, oh my gosh, these will, animals will never go extinct because they're just so plentiful. Like if you look just back to 200 years ago, humans could never impact them and make them disappear because there's just too many of them. And yet they're gone now. And so I, I think I, I'm always cautious and, and um, I think that there is a possibility that we could harm the planet. It, and presently, you know, we are. So it might it might even not be sure. We can't be sure about the future. You know, some people say, oh, well, it's, it's hopeless, so we shouldn't try. Um, but, I, you know, we can't really be sure what's going to happen in the future. It's pretty mysterious. And uh, what, I think, like, if we look at, well, what are we doing now? And how are we living now? 
and when we're out of balance, we can feel it. Um, I write about um, Buner's idea about earth grief, which is that some of the feelings that we get that arise in us, the distressing feelings, um, could be messages from the earth too, just as much as the climate and weather changes. Uh, so it's can it's sometimes we think, oh my gosh, if I'm not happy, then gosh, what's wrong with me? Let me just rearrange my life so that I can try to feel happy. But then sometimes that's that's a quest for not, you know, we feel what we feel and we feel what's there and and we are connected to the earth. And so sometimes whether it's anxiety or grief or despair, you know, or rage or whatever's coming up through us, there might be something that has to do with us being connected to the earth, even whether we know it or not, that might be might be us feeling what's going on for her. I mean, we could do nuclear craziness or God only knows what and do a lot of damage. I just feel like the Earth's billions of years old and give her a million or 10 million years to clean things up or 50, there'll be new species, I hope. I'm not, I mean, we can do damage. We are doing massive damage. But I think the Earth and its infinite intelligence will eliminate us or clip us down to a micro size. And in a way, it's actually a good thing. It'll save all these other species. It'll save systems. I mean, we think we're the biggest thing that ever happened, but that's part of our problem. We're just uh, part of the web of life. Like Chief Seattle said, we didn't weave the web of life. Man is a part of it. And that arrogance has caused us to get completely out of balance and become homo colossus, this death machine that just everything it touches, it kills pretty much in some way, indirectly or directly. But it just has to be stopped. I feel like if we, if the planet and all the other species in all the different areas, the ocean, the air, plants, the flora, the microbes, and the bees, the mammals, the only way for it to go on and thrive is the, the elimination of us. So I don't see some grand transformation coming in the next 10, 20, 30 years. We're hurtling in the other direction. I mean, I know we watched a lot of Disney movies as kids, and there's always a happy ending. This is physics in real life. And I don't feel like, oh, that's since we're doomed, I'm just going to start littering. I'm still going to be the same person I was if we weren't doomed. I don't know if we're doomed. I mean, if the plane has 100 miles of fuel and the landmass is 8,000 miles away, eh, the odds are pretty good that we're going to crash in the water. But between now and then, I just want to be the highest quality human I can be here in this temporary setting in my carbon suit. Yeah, I, I love um, I love a couple of the pieces that what you said. It, one is um, just kind of noting what's best for the earth. Like, you know, if, if she, you know, brings downsizes humans or, or whatever, is that it ultimately maybe that could be a good thing or, you know, just looking at things from the perspective of what's uh, good for the earth. Um, I agree. That's that's a way to go. And that's kind of what I mean by earth advocacy. Sometimes uh, environmentalism or activism gets said to be environmentalism or activism, but it really is about saving humans or saving saving civilization or saving the, you know, the way of life that's presently living. And that's not necessarily advocacy for the earth. Advocacy for the for the earth to me is looking at what's what's best for the earth long term and future generations of humans and all future generations of all species what's what what's a way that of living that keeps that in that balance in mind 
And I also really like the piece that you shared about um, the now, like it's kind of about how I live now. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. The odds aren't looking good that for humans or, you know, or necessarily for the ecosystems of the planet. Um, you know, I, I don't know. She, she has been known to recover um, in certain situations once the devastation stops. So there is, there could be, there could be a chance that once the devastation stops, she will recover. And there also seems some stories of ecosystems that can get so devastated, they they are not able to recover. So, um, you know, who knows uh, what's gonna happen, but it is kind of like what we do now and how we live in balance. And just because I look at the scientific odds doesn't mean I should say, oh, well, guess I shouldn't, you know, write wild yoga or help people, you know, transform since that's what I feel like I'm part of what I'm here to do. Um, that, you know, my doing that is is a love prayer for the world, regardless of, you know, the ultimate outcome. Yeah, I say do it all. Milk it all. One, you're not going to take any coupons with you when you leave. Good money. You're not going to take any of your books. You're not going to even take your body. I don't even know if the personality transcends. So, hey, lay it all out there. Get Get your money's worth. Get your soul's money's worth. How did you come up with the whole wild yoga idea, which I love? Uh, well, I was um, in Nasara, Costa Rica, where I've taught yoga for a lot of winners. And my teachers, Don and Amba Stapleton, uh, they, um, Don is was an, is an art teacher. Yeah, he was a professor at art before he was a yoga teacher. And so they really encourage you, which I love to do it your own way, like not to, like to learn their systems and their ways, but also to ultimately listen to your muse. And studying with Animus Valley Institute, I'd also been very encouraged to listen to my muse and what my soul wants and to talk to nature. So those kind of came together one day when I was out um, in the tide pools, which is one of my favorite places in the Sahara. And I, I was talking to the ocean about what I could offer, you know, my love for the ocean and what could I do to give back to, to such beauty. And, you know, my body started spontaneously moving in the water. You know, I was doing um, handstands and uh, balancing pose in the water, which is really fun because then when you fall over, you just splash and rather than crash. <laughs> and uh, I was also swimming in the waves and making up my own yoga with the moving waves and on the beach and with the trees there. Uh, and so I, you know, I kind of heard from the natural world as I was doing this, you know, this is something you should, you should do this with other people. And of course, it's so easy to discount myself or so easy, easy to discount ourselves. I was like, no, no, I don't think anybody else would be interested in this. And and the, the natural world that I was having the conversation with, the place there just kept encouraging me like, no, no, seriously, this is something. And and uh, I kind of, in the, in the end of the conversation, I gave way and I promised that the next winter I would try to do a, a wild yoga program there. And I would ask my teachers if I could do it at their center. And so, and so I did, and they said, yes. And I didn't market it at all. I didn't send one email about it. Cause part of me was like, still not very confident and didn't think it was going to fill. And actually because of my lack of marketing, only two people signed up, but it was, it was kind of perfect because I was able to explore my ideas and my practices with just those two people in a really intimate way and come to understand through their feedback that I was, that it was actually what I was creating was something valuable. And, uh, and then after that, I just, I began to go on creating it and actually put uh, more trust in it and spread the word. Is there a way to find balance between the two realms of the wild and also this, like you are right now, you're dealing with both, you're getting on a plane, 
going to fly to Australia. You need money to live and have your dog and whatever. And then you're out in the wilds. There must be a way to try to find an ongoing balance between the two realms. You can't really run from the world the way it is, the homo colossus world, but you could maybe live in better harmony within it and then move through it with greater grace. Yeah, I guess it's it's in part about knowing where my allegiance is to, you know, my allegiance is to the natural world, to my soul, uh, you know, to what my muse asks me to do in the moment. And, you know, right now my muse is asking me to be more engaged in the world in this way, like doing podcasts, writing a book. If it was up to my ego personality, being the life of a wilderness guide suited me quite well you know, and being in a cabin, you know, away alone with myself or a few others with nature. That's what my personality is, is kind of made for. But what my muse is asking is engagement with the world. And so that's where my allegiance is. It's, it's not necessarily always doing what's comfortable for me, but actually expanding to live up to the vision that my muse has. And, and uh, that, you know, does include being engaged in the world. Uh, So I guess that's, you know, that's kind of how I, I balance it. But there is, you know, there is this allegiance to the natural world and this visioning with my muse and constantly asking my muse questions. Yeah, but like, how, how am I going to, how, how is this going to come into balance? Like with me or with other humans, can you help me give me dreams or visions for like, this seems, you know, still seems so out of balance, help me. And then the muse responds how she wants, you know, and she gives me, and I trust, I trust, you know, I trust the muse more than I trust my mind's thoughts or ideas about what I think needs to happen. And is your muse a living energetic entity that you're in touch with and you have a name for, not that you need a name, but that it's a very distinct energetic uh, experience? Yeah, it's, it's an, it's, it's changed forms over all the time that um, I've known it. Um, And it can be, you know, come through dreams and be different entities. And, you know, the muse has been trees for me at times. The muse has been rivers for me at times. And when I say times, I mean for some years. There were some years that trees were my main muse and there were some years that rivers were my main muse. And there's also projections onto other humans that you know I cultivate uh, qualities to call me into like, oh, this is the quality that the muse is calling in. The muse wants me to be a writer and delve more into being a writer. The earth wants me to be an activist and delve more into being an activist. Um, and it is a distinct entity. I also feel in my body because when I'm doing what the muse wants, I'm happy and like I can feel the joy and laughter in my body. It's really interesting. Like normally, according to my personality, sitting at a computer, typing a book would not be something that my body would really would be like, let's just go outside and Instead, I was turning down opportunities to work or be outside to sit at the computer and type. But meanwhile, I was experiencing sometimes, you know, hardship and challenge too, but unusual states of joy. At I could feel my muse's happiness at what I was doing. It was palpable and it was just coming. I mean, I had tried to write a book a decade earlier and it wasn't quite coming when I tried from my mind. But when I was coming from my muse saying it's time like then, it just it just came. You're definitely connected to it and you're very clear, aren't you? Yeah, it's 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 hard sometimes because I ask my muse things and the muse doesn't have answers about lots of things, but the muse seems to manage to communicate the next thing or whatever 
you know, it's like this, now this, this is what the focus is. And the muse sometimes has ideas that feel too hard for me, like, oh gosh, I can't do that, or oh, I'm not ready for that. Um, and the muse is patient. It takes time. And, and sometimes I also have to focus on self-care and slow down and take my time with doing the visions that are emerging. Have plant medicines like ayahuasca or anything like that uh, been a part of your journey? Um, they have. I, I, uh, in my thirties, um, I did, um, both a few mushroom ceremonies and, uh, six ayahuasca ceremonies. And I, I wrote about one of my ayahuasca ceremonies in chapter 12 and how it informed, um, my journey. Most of the time I get, I get so much from my dreams and nature that that's enough for me to know what to follow. But there's been some times, particularly times when I felt stuck, like I needed something more. I, to me, those medicines feel like a little bit like two by four or kind of intense. And like, there's a lot that comes through, but sometimes when I've needed more help, particularly around my questions around ecological devastation, or just if I felt a little stuck personally in my life, it's been a helpful way to, um, to get unstuck. Yeah. I'd be curious what if you saw things that sort of shifted and changed you that you didn't know existed or that expansion then changed your relationship, say perhaps to your feelings around your own mortality. There was a couple experiences, one of the two major experiences. They were all really, really powerful. Um, there was one um, really crucial experience with, um, with mushrooms that I didn't did. I, and I didn't write about that one. But that one, I definitely felt like I was dying in, in that experience. Um, I was, you know, pretty or going insane, one or the others. And I was just praying. I was actually singing my soul song and praying the whole time. And it felt like during that time, if I could find something that was who I was to be in the world, that then I would live. And if I couldn't, then I would die. And I was so I was praying hard for a vision and of course, the 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 mushrooms knew when I tried to come up with something, if I tried to come up with something that wasn't just to ease the pain, like it didn't work. So I just had to keep praying and waiting. And ultimately, visions came up related to my, uh, my soul name and purpose, um, love and prayer. So there were visions of love, um, particularly like I people's eyes where love existed and very relationships. And there was... Um, there was visions of like this prayer that I was doing. I mean, I literally became a skeleton in a cave, just, you know, rattling my bones in prayer. And that, and there was a real feeling that that's partly who I am and that matters. And, uh, and so that, that vision informed me going forward. And also something altered in my brain. I can't explain it, but I, I became less able to do things that I used to do um, and think in ways that I used to think. Um, that kept me on old trajectories. And I, I like, I had to be more of this vision that came, I was like forced. And, um, and then I wrote about a journey that I had with ayahuasca. Um, I had a lot of journeys with ayahuasca where I felt the tree love of myself, that part of my mythos that that was very nerd. Those were very nurturing, loving visions, empowering visions. And then I also had um, some visions that really broke me down. And one of those is one that I wrote about um, one that took me into waves of, of sludge and, um, 
you know, toxic waste um, just over and over again um, and feeling that as the as a, as an actual state in the world um, as what happens to the natural world and uh, and then from there having to find my song and and the ayahuasca was really um, kind of highlighting a pattern that I can have to discount myself and stay in suffering and uh, and to and empowering me to feel the suffering and be aware of these dynamics in the world, but also trust the power of my voice and my offering too, and not sit back and, but to offer. Uh, speaking of visions. So last night I was going to say wild dreams, these beautiful bears kept coming to me, giant black bear or brown bear, somewhere larger in life. And at times I was frightened because of their size, but I was able to, connect with them. And I felt like they had messages for me. They were beautiful. And when I woke up in the middle of the night, I had the thought, oh, I need to look up the Animal Speaks book. What does the bear mean? I never had bears in my dreams. I don't know if it was subconscious because I knew I was going to interview you, but it wasn't in the forefront of my thinking. But it was very visceral. These were uh, lucid dreams. Do you get anything from any of that, I thought it only hit me about 15 minutes before we went on. I thought, oh, yeah, the dreams. I need to ask her about that. Wow. Bears, not just one, but multiple bears. How how lucky are you? That's that's fabulous. It was scary, too. But in a good way, I was like, whoa, I'm sitting somewhere standing outside in the woods. And here comes this gigantic black bear. And I didn't try to run, but I was like terrified as I would be right now if I was in Muir Woods or somewhere. And then I thought, oh, and it just came up and we interacted and I felt like it really touched me energetically and it had a message for me. I don't remember what the message is, but I felt touched and like a download was given. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That's amazing. Well, the the inner beloved, which is connected to the muse, how I see it, is often alluring and terrifying. So, and sometimes we feel the terror more and sometimes we feel the alluring part more. Sometimes at one, some moment we might be just alert and it might seem like terror is far away, but if we go further into the allurement, we'll find terror. Or we might kind of have a nightmare and just feel terrified by the beloved, but really like there's so much power and beauty and, and gifts in, in her presence. And um, it, it sounds like these bears might be a kind of um, beloved guide figure for you. And what they're evoking. I mean, if there's terror, they're calling you to something that might be scary. Just even to be in their presence feels like it could be scary, but there might also be something powerful. And maybe it is related to our talk. I mean, bear is definitely a part of my mythos. It's not only my last name, it's a part of my mythos. And it's it's a part of my ancestors' mythos. Um, I, I um, am part Swedish. And my grandfather, one of my grandfathers was 100% Swedish. And um, his name was uh, Stromborn B with B-J-O-R-N. The J was dropped. And uh, in Norse, that means river bear. And um, I found out through Norse mythology that we often inherit the um, thealgia of our ancestors. And they believe that people have seven souls. And one of the souls is like an animal spirit. And so my ancestor's animal spirit was a bear. And that meant that bear was the one who came and was there in their dreaming body that helped them dream. And so bear, bear is also really significant in my life has come in multiple dreams, multiple waking encounters, and also 
a sense that I just feel of myself in the dream, in the dream of my body. I feel sometimes like a lot like bear. And uh, so maybe you were, you know, ready to get into the into the fray with the bears and maybe the dream world was helping to prepare you and there could be more to explore beyond this time, but, you know, communing and visiting with them and connecting to what their power and gift might be to you. Remember I wanted to run, but I thought, well, that won't do any good. And I just sort of stayed and in it all right now, hearing you speak, I feel like the message is to be brave. They're asking me to be brave and that I was safe even from scary things. That's what I'm getting right now. It's like tuning into it. I'd be brave because they were majestic and beautiful, but they actually, while terrifying, were there to help. And I was so in awe and respectful, but it felt like literally not some uh, multiple dimensional thing. It was like, literally, like if I was out in the woods and, oh my, oh, what's that? Oh Lord, look at the size of that thing. Well, this might be my exit, <laughs> you know, sort of. Uh, we'll make it quick, guys. Be, oh, now you're friendly. Oh, wow, you're spiritual. You're messengers, you're manifestations, you're guides. There might be a Native American energy involved in it too, but it was such a blessing now in hindsight. And then they walked away, I walked away, and I was like, wow. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, that's not that was a dream or a different dimension. Now I'm back here. I'm out in the woods with the bears. But I did feel like now, especially... It's a, it was a gift and a blessing. Mm, wonderful. I feel the, I feel like a, a heartbeat when you, when you say that, like, a, and I, um, that sounds wonderful that you're feeling their invitation to, to be brave and, and what that would mean for you. Now we have listeners all over the world. How do they get in touch and begin to move into this greater harmony with the earth? with creation itself and ultimately then with themselves? Well, you know, it depends where people are. One of the things that I like about my book is I tried to make it accessible for absolutely everyone and to start out, you know, ba in basic ways, you know, like in the first section of the book, Wild, we start with just the body, you know, coming home to the body. And in the second chapter, we go into deepening our ecological perception and actually talk about basic ways to like start connecting to nature um, which is just going outside is, is a start, you know, being outdoors, even in a city, there's the sky above us, you know, there's the weather, there's, there are trees and beings out there. But of course, if you can get to a wilder place, that's the best for connecting to nature. Um, sometimes people don't have access. So wherever you are, you can also imagine the city, you can imagine the wild that lived beneath the city where you are. Um, but going outside and doing these practices, you know, leaving um, your music and your Walkman and your podcast behind, you know, just for this time out in nature, you know, and actually going out so you can listen and experience the natural world and uh, begin to be present and to begin to let yourself imagine um, the natural world as something you're connected to, as something that even has a life force of its own, something that is a being that has feelings and a life and you could come to understand it, however different it might be from our own understanding of, of being alive. And so I offer, you know, very particular practices um, and kind of a continuum of them step by step for how to, uh, to step into that relationship. But it is first by going out and trying to empty our minds of all our own agendas and really take in these others and take in the relationship between these others, um, you know, between tree roots and the ground or between 
uh, the water of a lake, ocean, or river, and the shore. You know what is happening in these places in between, and and you know to let um our five-year-old come out. Our five-year-old knows how to talk to nature, and and it knows that imagination is real. That's one of the things we get taught as adults: is that if I'm, this could just be in my imagination, it's not real. Well, imagination is real, and you know the deep imagination is things that bubble up. Um, unbidden, like that our minds would never come up with. And that's how I can tell when it's my deep imagination. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did that come into my mind or into my image? I would have never come up with that on my own. Um, but even if we're playing in the shallow imagination or the deep imagination, it's all, we're all swimming in imagination. And that is a way of knowing. So if you can let yourself play like the five-year-old of you and start talking to nature out loud, um, that's a way to begin having this conversation. Are you just constantly blown away by the infinite mystery? I have to say that I am. Fortunately, I am. And part of it is, is the work that is not only my life, my own life, but the work that I am where I get to listen to other people's stories and watch other people go have connections with nature and um, go on solos. And I get to hear their stories of what happens. And I just, I am so blown away because I used to be a psychotherapist, so I know lots of great fixes for people, but what my mind can come up with is so small compared to what the natural world and dream and the dream world comes up with for people. One of my favorite things to do when I work with clients is listening to dreams. I'm just um, always surprised by how the dream world takes us so exactly where we need to go, so much better than I could ever come up with. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.